Green against the oft-wimmed concrete, near as orange opposes peel. Unstained panes where neath grows buckwheat, silvery trains where thought tracks feel. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are going to be talking about solar punk. Ooh. I'm overly excited for this episode. Also, Merry Christmas. This is coming out on Christmas Day. Oh yeah, it is, isn't it? So, uh, if you're listening, thanks for spending Christmas with us. And if you're watching on YouTube, I think you can see our small Christmas tree, which is in fact just a living small potted cypress with our sole ornaments, (laughs) uh, crocheted frog wearing Mm -hmm. a scarf and a Santa hat. (laughs) You asked about the poem, you didn't, but I'll describe it a little bit anyway. So I think solar punk is such a visual aesthetic, which Mm -hmm. is obviously why we're talking about it on a podcast. So each of those four (laughs) lines is kind of about a color and also what I'll say kind of a a relational word or a directional word against opposing through beneath. And it's because solar punk, while it's kind of very forward thinking and very much ostensibly a glimpse into the future, I just think it's such a complex and kind of maze-like feeling mm-hmm. that's, yeah, I like those words. Also, there's a little pun in there, which is, I talk about trains and also orange and peel. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a of a joke because in Montreal, there is a metro stop called Peel, where I think the orange line goes through. That's a very deep cut. Yeah, but I think true. it's the orange. I don't really ride the trains that I much. Think, but I think. Yeah, let's just say I it think is you're for, right. the, for the sake of this. <laughs> Orange peel. You start a guerrilla art campaign in that station to decorate it with orange peels. Yeah, it's festive for sure. Mm. So your poem reminds me of a quote that I found while preparing for this episode that I feel like encapsulates what solar punk is quite nicely because it originated as an a literary movement, but obviously, as you said, it's a bit more visual. So this quote is by Dr. Jennifer Hamilton, and it says, Although radical, it's not radically impossible. Indeed, many of the technologies and practices that solar punks draw into their imaginings already exist. Solar and other renewable energy, urban agriculture, or organic architecture, and design. Like sci-fi authors, solar punks remix the present to produce an alternative future. Nice. Yeah, I think that quote introduces it really well, which is that while on this podcast, we're usually talking about a future that is perhaps a little bit more fantastical and deliberately out of reach. Mm -hmm. Solar punk kind of uses existing technologies, either household stuff, maybe even some bygone stuff, and certainly some kind of cutting edge stuff and imagines it as this world that's only only slightly different. Mm-hmm. Something that we talk about amongst ourselves regarding like art and product and marketing quite often is this thing I found called the 3% rule, mm-hmm. which is that if you really want to make something beautiful to the common tastes and also successful, you should tweak it a maximum like 3% to what is the norm already. Mm-hmm. So like if you're making, I don't know, a new Kleenex or a new tissue or a new tissue box, don't try and like reinvent the wheel, just make it like 3% different from the current one, still beautiful, and that will fall much more within kind of our accepted limits. And mm-hmm. I think solar punk at large is kind of like 
the world mm-hmm. in its nicest, like the nicest places of the urban world, let's say, but 3% nicer even. Yeah, like, It's exactly. not often that, as she says, not that, not that radical a vision. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of architects and urban planners are already making basically solar punk buildings yeah. and city designs. So it's probably a little bit of a feedback. Solar punk is quite niche still. It's not the biggest. Yeah, it's a weird thing because I think that the term, you know, the online mm-hmm. subculture, which is what this is, is, yeah, not, the, not that big. Mm-hmm. Maybe hasn't transcended like, say, cyberpunk did mm-hmm. or steampunk. But the principles and the images and the ethos I think is very mainstream now, I think which is so. a, a bizarre thing. So thinking about the the architecture and especially I was considering it this week in relation to those other online subcultures, like I mentioned cyberpunk, mm-hmm. like we could also talk about cottagecore, which is kind of like the cozier, almost bucolic and pastoral pastoral and frog and toady um, version of cyberpunk or even something like dark academia, which is all about rainy moody buildings in glasgow and studying and wearing <laughs> tweed, tweed i think yeah we can kind of contrast solar punk to these other ones by how its architecture relatively makes you feel and also how what i think is most interesting is, is how much solar punk centralizes architecture like really the built environment is the main medium through which solar punk acolytes uh view it as being as being materialized even more so i kind of noted than cottagecore wherein cottage is literally in the name Mm. like the cottage is not that central to that right yeah cottagecore is more about farming and baking and is very maternal and in this way it imagines its believers supporters fans (laughs) right yeah as bakers and farmers and as individuals as individual and, yeah. and mums and dark academia kind of positions us all as readers or learners or professors or something like that mm-hmm. and solar punk i suppose sees us all as builders or at least inhabitants yeah that's very true i in preparation for this episode listened to the audiobook ecotopia which is essentially the only solar punk literature that seems to really exist. And it was written almost 30 years before the aesthetic was born. If you're interested, read that. But the chapter I just listened to was talking about how in this ecotopia, in this solar punk world, there are vehicles, personal Mm -hmm. vehicles. Obviously, they're all electric and stuff. But everyone makes their own. And everyone... Yeah. It was talking about how one of the cars was made of driftwood one of them was made from leaves yeah it's just like very diy i suppose yeah the, the maker hero i think is the name for mm-hmm. the archetype and i think that yeah this this parallels the architecture really well whether they be making cars out of driftwood or or rooftop gardens or greenhouses mm-hmm. or living walls so i think this is a really nice element of it because it it grounds it first and foremost in the real world which is there's a touch of irony because the aesthetic is so born of and proliferated on 
and participated in online mm-hmm. and by an extension of that community because it's so universally depicted as urban an urban utopia like a rural solar punk thing is almost an oxymoron in that you don't often see those images because usually it's just like here's singapore it's much harder to imagine rural solar punk living. As you and I often discuss, it would be nice to live in a rural place, but you have to own a car. You can't exactly live off-grid and have no way to get into town. It doesn't like it doesn't really work, so I feel like imagining a solar punk rural community is harder. But ideally, we would find ways to do that. Well, I think it also it centralizes the community so much, which maybe you'll get into a little bit later on the politics. Mm-hmm. But it's a very much kind of a a we thing, mm. W-E or an us. Like that's what it always depicts in solar punk imagery. It's the, the town, the city, the commune, the community garden, people close together and generally lots of them. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that's why she says it's not so radically different because we already live in for the most part, you know, increasing urbanization, like people do live very close together. Mm-hmm. And this is just like, what if those places were nicer and greener and friendlier and maybe a little bit less hierarchical? But I also think this perhaps leads into or goes some way to explaining the lack of solar punk stories, because stories almost by their nature are about individuals, mm-hmm. whereas the aesthetic doesn't really put those first and foremost. Absolutely, yeah. It's. It makes sense that they put community at the center of it because it's something we so lack that we have to almost bash people over the heads with the idea that like community is the way to make sustainable cities, not just environmentally sustainable, but socially sustainable. Because in a solar punk world, there's it's post-scarcity sort of thing. And that means that everyone would have to care about their neighbor and... Again, in this book, it was talking about how, yeah, the people who are working, because most of the people in the utopia still work at the post office uh, as delivery people, but there's no push to make an excess of money because they're already cared for. Like their food, their housing, their recreation, everything is going to be the same. So they don't have to be working so much that it's unpleasant to survive. Do you like the architecture as often depicted in these uh, renders or landscapes? I think it very quickly got very digital and mm. white and just like those condos that you see going up all over the world. Yeah. It's like, I'm sure, yeah, slapping some trees on the outside of a building make it look cool and it does help with insulation and stuff. But just making a building look green doesn't mean it is green. It's kind of greenwashing. And I feel like the solar punk graphic designers online often don't think about that. They're like, oh, this just looks cool. And I'm like, you know, ha- you're making art. It doesn't have to be hyper practical of like, well, how are people in wheelchairs going to get up there? True, how yeah. are like families going to live in these close quarters? But I think an element of economic and cultural awareness is useful because they're completely devoid of culture and a big part of solar punk philosophy is indigenous cultures like making places a bit more different yeah i think a a, a spatial awareness like a 
a geographic awareness. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the architecture, as you said, often white, concrete and glassy skyscrapers shown sometimes in funky shapes, more often in a more traditional geometry with just greenery, I hesitate to say spammed, but you could layered use that word. all mm. over the place. And it's like, wow, how idyllic. Mm. Which is, you know, in some ways, and I often think, especially the more fantastical ones that look a little bit more Dr. Susi and round, mm. it is pretty, pretty neat, actually. And I think the real life root or one of the inspirations for this is called organic architecture, mm. which I believe was was coined and developed in part by Frank Lloyd Wright, who was obviously from the 1900s, and who I also think inspired The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. So shout out to her and all the other objectivists. <laughs> but organic architecture is a little bit more of that geographically unique and harmonious ethos than the typical solar punk renders. I mean, it mm, might be the I fact agree. that most of the people drawing solar punk cities aren't architects. So they, That's a they good point. you know, like we don't actually have a an experienced understanding of how things should grow in relation to the hills, mountains, rivers, and plains which already kind of adorn that land. Mm. But organic architecture, I had a list of um kind of design principles that weren't wasn't drawn up by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's another architect called David Pearson. And he called this list the the Gaia Charter, which I think is a little bit pretentious, but we'll allow it. <laughs> and so the kind of design points for this were be inspired by nature and be sustainable, healthy, conserving, and diverse. Unfold like an organism from the seed within. Exist in the continuous present and begin again and again. Follow the flow and be flexible and adaptable. Satisfy social, physical, spiritual needs. Grow out of the sight and be unique. Celebrate the spirit of youth, play, and surprise. And ex I think he said, like, express the rhythm of music and dance. Which, mm. That part is a little bit Feels like a bit personal. Yeah. This reminds me of two episodes that we've recorded before. We recorded the Building the Ideal Library during the education semester. Yeah. And another episode, I can't remember which one, we talked about this house that we both watched this full-length, basically, documentary on from Architectural yeah. Digest that was built on just like these spiky rocks and it was built to look like a fish bones and it was super cool. There's so many really interesting biomimicry examples. Yeah, that's a good word. If you want to have a whole episode, our library one is very focused on that. We talked about making a beehive library. We talked about a bunch of examples of existing really cool libraries all over the world mm -hmm. that often used this principle. Yeah. Coming out of the landscape, in other words. Mm -hmm. So I do think that's something that solar punk architecture, in theory, should should be a proponent of. But in quote-unquote reality, as in online renders, mm -hmm. often ignores and is kind of just cut and paste. Mm -hmm. And I guess we could get into the fact that AI image generation seems to be hugely popular also in solar punk and imagined landscape crowds, mm -hmm. which is really... Uh, a sad kind of irony, but... Very ironic. I was going to say that because I feel like if you typed into one of those AI art generators a solar punk city, they would all look the same. White buildings with yeah, green. They do, though. They do. I mean, we know this because 
spoilers, we were have been recently looking for a, a new podcast graphic. Mm-hmm. And we thought that solarpunk artists would be a great place to to kind of start searching because we wanted it to be a fantastical landscape. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find people that aren't that have some kind of unique style and also a, a certain texture to the work. Mm-hmm. I think solarpunk very often lacks texture. Yeah, for sure. It, it's very glossy. It doesn't look lived in. Exactly. Which a solarpunk future definitely will. Because everything's not going to be glass and new. It, it should will be, be dirty and, and grimy and... Punk. Yeah, an anecdote. I think the most solarpunk example near us in Montreal is there's this secondhand electronics store mm, that yeah. feels very solarpunk in a way that isn't usually depicted in these images mm-hmm. architecturally it's literally just a, a tiny nook store that you it doesn't look um appealing the windows are actually all blocked off just by cables and wires and old dvd players and stuff like that mm-hmm. and you go in and finding things is impossible impossible like you're not going to find something but if you ask the owner Hey, I need one of these cables. He'll go, yeah, I got one. Then just go to a random yeah. point in the room and find them. Put his hand into like to the shoulder into a whole box full of cables and then just come out come out with it. <laughs> we know this because we had a, a last minute run to get a, a cable once to record this podcast. So Yeah. The only cables we use. Organism of the week. Do 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 do. The eternal white mushroom. The eternal white mushroom? Yes. Okay. Christmassy. Christmassy, vaguely so punky in that this is a bioluminescent <gasps> fungi. No what? Way. Yeah, apparently there's actually a lot of them. What? But this one looked the, the neatest to me when I went on the article for 10 bioluminescent mushrooms found around the world. Oh, wow. This one is really endemic to the specific site in Brazil in the rainforest. And yeah, the eternal white mushroom or Mycena luxaterna. And it looks like these squiggly green stalks. Okay. But they glow like glow sticks, like that shade of of green. But they're so thin and straggly. They look like the the really thin pasta. Is it vermicelli? Mm -hmm. I want to say. I'm not sure. Um, And then they just have regular small grayish brownish mushroom caps on top Whoa. but it's really the, the stalks that are neat they I use the same even... kind of like chemical and enzyme reactions that that fireflies do yeah Whoa. do you know why they glow or is it just for for fun okay i think it's because they're they're punk they're punk they yeah. just want to rebel against the status quo of fungus yeah cool it's interesting that they are endemic to an area of Brazil because that's where solar punk originated. Telmo, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was born out of Brazil. And when I get into my examples later, the pretty much one of the only existing solar punk cities is in Brazil. Fun facts. Also along these lines, I want to do a solo scene recommends for this week. Okay. Which is a 60-minute animation that we watched last night called Comet in Moominland. <laughs> really idyllic and grainy and childlike and wondrous and also dark dark has some solar punk 
imagery, perhaps. They go to a neat observatory at one point. Mm-hmm. And Snufkin. Who can say who can say no to Snufkin? No one. So in Solar Punk, obviously we're talking a bit about the art that already exists, the renderings, the digital art. But I wanted to talk about how in a solar punk future, how would art be disseminated and made? Because it will probably be much different from how it is today. Because right now, almost all art is a product. We pay for yeah. it or we're paid to make it. It's a corporate thing. It's a corporate thing. So with film, I was thinking it could be a lot more experimental. Because as I mentioned earlier, people aren't going to be forced to make a bunch of money with the films they make. If it's a flop... Everyone involved will still have a nice house to live in and a nice, like, they'll be well. Is there a word for that? They'll be well, I suppose. Have good well-being. And so films can take more risks. It won't be like the calculated, focus-grouped situation of a lot of films today. And same with music. But for music in the solar punk future, I was thinking and inspired by jazz and blues musicians who often will perform their own versions of pop songs because they obviously can't perform exactly the pop songs because that is stealing. But they'll kind of remix it a bit. And I thought that would be really interesting a way how music can be disseminated in like a solar punk world of perhaps not everyone's going to go to the capital cities to go to big concerts, but the musicians, like the music heads, probably will. And they can then disseminate the music and make it a bit more localized and remix it, and it will be a bit more DIY textured, I suppose. Okay. The biggest principle that I get from solar punk is that form and function are completely equal. So it's not just functional, utilitarian, how I feel like a decent amount of people probably imagine a utopia to be. Mm. Everyone just wearing their given kind of cult-like garment. (laughs) But... Solar punk has a lot more of an aesthetic angle to it because well-being is the most important part of it. Like, the most important part of it isn't architecture or art. It's making people live well. And we know that people don't live well when they don't have a way to express themselves. Yeah, and it's it's also... It's technological optimism, I think, is kind of synonymous with solar punk. Mm-hmm. Like, if we talk about the roots of it, cyberpunk is like... What if technology keeps increasing for mm-hmm. the worst in the hands of the few who are really exploitative and things, all the problems of today, the mm-hmm. economic and, and infrastructural problems just become like a hundredfold. Mm-hmm. And in Solarpunk, it's pretty much the other side of that coin where it's like technology keeps increasing, but it's actually now to the betterment of us, which I suppose would also mean, I mean, you talked about well-being, but also the aesthetic betterment. So like... Mm-hmm. Uh, a solar punk technology off the top of my head is 3D printing yeah, or maybe sure. people embroidering their own stuff mm-hmm. with like or having their own sewing machines or I don't know their own loom yeah exactly more convivial tools that they can use to create for themselves and others and it's interesting you said embroidery because that was my first point of within the solar punk community it seems that embroidery visible mending these types of things are really important and that people wouldn't hide when their clothes get holes or their clothes are perhaps two pieces of fabric sewn together. And it's not necessarily intentionally being bohemian and like fringe, but it's just no. like 
it would be more aesthetically acceptable. Well, I think it's it's a badge of honor. And also, I mean, to an extent, it it is deliberate because we haven't mentioned the punk angle yet. Mm-hmm. Like that is punk to look in the face of the once dominant corporate hegemonies of your H&Ms and your Nikes and say, no, I'm not going to buy a new shirt. I'm just going to stitch this one. Mm-hmm. And that's also why um, the right to repair, not just not just clothing, but things that are maybe a little bit more gated these days, like that's a, a key thing to mm. solar punk because we're looking in the face of your Teslas and your Apples and saying, now we get to fix it because things are becoming just ridiculously inaccessible from that regard, i.e., no, you can buy this, but you're not actually allowed to fix it. I mean... That will um, spoil the warranty or whatever it may be. Exactly. We, when recording today, moved this clothing rack, if you're watching, I'm pointing to it, over here, and it just, like, fell apart. And we're like, well, because it's not even real wood, we can't even, like, nail it <laughs> or, like, do anything, because if you put try and put a nail through this, it's plastic yeah. and it will splinter. It's our bad, I suppose, but... Mm. 50-50, I think. But it's about, you know, you can buy these things with the future in mind. I went on the, the Solarpunk subreddit, which has about 130,000 users. So I think it's it's a decent enough cross-section for the subculture, the aesthetic. I don't think there are many bigger places on the internet where people congregate and aggregate Solarpunk news like that. Maybe hashtags on, on Twitter or Instagram. And I just looked at the top five posts of all time. Because I thought that would give us a, you know, at least a, a surface level insight into what this is. And one of them was about the right to repair, specifically like tractors or, so, or cars or something like that. It was a, a lawsuit that had been filed so that farmers could tinker with these things themselves and not mm-hmm. have to be beholden to, to corporate settings. And another one was about streetlights that reduced light pollution. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a an infrastructure technologically, naturally inclined uh, topic, I suppose. But yeah. also, as you say, not that radical, just within reach. Yeah, in Egotopia, they talk about how there's no streetlights and everyone who's lived there for the 20 years that it's existed are like, well, we can just, we can see in the dark, basically. Not that they have like night <laughs> vision, but it's just like your eyes adapt to yeah, the dark, right? I like that. And they're like, it's not a problem. And it's also like, there's no crime in Egotopia. So like, have to worry about someone like jumping into the bushes. Yeah, but those kind of those kind of connections, as in the world is like this, and so the people are like this. Mm-hmm. I think that's that that's the linking that solar punk often misses out, and that's what people the, that's the kind of narrative substance that people really cling to the, those little details. Because you know, in in a solar punk picture, it might say the street street lamps are like this, mm. but just because it's a still image, you don't get that cause and effect that. Therefore, the people live like this. You don't That's get that, that lifestyle thing that you can um, aspire to, like you can perhaps with, with Cottagecore or the other more individual subcultures. Mm. The other posts on there, one was just some guy protesting Elon Musk. One was a meme about someone sitting in their back garden at the table with like chickens and birds and a gramophone and random things like this. And one was just a quote, exalting soil. We all love soil, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do. Well... I do. It's true. So I think what I can kind of get from that milieu is that solar punk is really 
kind of intrinsically a disorganized thing. For sure. It reminds me of in the same way that that most uh, leftist politics tend to be. Like it's yeah, I mean, a, it's the whole degrowth organization is quite decentralized. Degrowth similar. It, it's, it, and that makes it hard to organize or even agree on a definition of what this is. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's so compelling about solar punk. It's in this perpetual state of trying to define itself. This seems like every other web page about solar punk is that someone has written a different manifesto. Mm-hmm. But it's like there's all these manifestos for people that for the most part aren't organized in real life and can't really decide whether this is an artistic movement, a political movement something that we just indulge in fantasies or something that we really want to try to manifest. And I think that's one of the negatives about how feasible it all seems because with something like steampunk where there are blimps and clockwork mechanisms running the whole world, everybody who engages in that kind of fandom, I suppose, Mm -hmm. knows that this is a fantasy about if the world had gone different. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Solarpunk, there's a bit of a blurring of the line about, is this a roadmap? Or is this also just a kind of mm-hmm. artistic, is this just a genre? Perhaps that lends to the disorganization because half the people perhaps are just treating it like an aesthetic, yeah. fun sci-fi thing. The other half are very serious about it in a degrowth kind of way yeah. of, we should really look into this and really yeah. keep creating art in this as... It's, it's funny because I do think that, as I was saying, architecturally and just a lot of the principles are very mainstream, mm. but they're just not called solar punk. So I think if I was to kind of be a be the ruler of it and just say this is this, this is this, and have that be the accepted definitions, solar punk is for Pinteresty mood board pictures of what this world could be, and then it in action, i.e., being manifested in the real world uses other terms like progressive politics, mm. degrowth, post-capitalist or whatever, community design, organic architecture, co-ops, you know, mm. like all the examples of it. Because I think if someone just said, oh, I'm a solar punk, it's like, well, what do you do? Yeah, it's more you know, cosplaying. Yeah, yeah, kind of, which is fair enough. Mm. All of those examples that you're giving of the words that we'd use to describe solar punk to people today really get into the politics of it. And surprisingly, very few online forums discuss the politics. They're just all like anarchy and communes. And it's like, okay, yeah. but that's like a bit extreme. And it, again, in the kind of cosplaying. It's a little bit superficial. Superficial sure. way. Because it's like, yeah, like you can say anarchy, but like, do you genuinely understand what it means? Probably not. I don't. No, because it just basically means no hierarchy really no government at all but solar punk based on my reading of people creating these scenarios and most notably there's a long 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 essay on medium called on the political dimensions of solar punk by andrew hudson and this article does a really great job of laying out what solar punk politics mean without using any words besides solar punk. So it's creating something new. Okay. And that's basically what post-capitalist economics and politics and culture are, is you can say post-capitalist, it's kind of what degrowth is, but then it will mean something different for each area. 
And that's what solar punk is. It will mean something different in Montreal than it does in Brazil. Like the architecture. Exactly. And it's like we can't prescribe Marxism to everyone. We can't prescribe anarchy because it won't necessarily work for the people, their cultural history, even their environment. Yeah. It's like in Canada, if there was no centralized government, how would we deal with the snow? Like, would we <laughs> just have to like shovel ourselves out of the six feet of snow? Maybe. Maybe. But it's just like there's certain things that I think require centralization in different areas. And yeah. Maybe some smaller communities would do fine with no centralization. And I also think in this this impossibility of having certainty regarding the politics of it is often where the the tech kind of fills in the gaps mm-hmm. in an ideal, in a sober punk picture of the world. So for instance, you mentioned the snow. It's like, well, who's going to clear it if there's no government? Who's going to plow it and blah, blah, blah. I feel like people might just say, well, actually the solar punk streets are heated and this means that the snow melts itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's that this is where it, it strays often into a kind of magical realism, which I'm all for, but yeah. does, maybe doesn't work best as a, as a political ideology where people might just picture like that Chobani ad. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll mention that in the examples. I wasn't going to uh, because that's the most commonly. Yeah. Well, there's a famous Chobani ad or, or commercial that is like the solar punk founding text. Basically. And it just has like, I think it has like cyborg cows and like and turbines that run perpetually and it's just like more of a sci-fi picture of a farm than something mm-hmm. just within reach. And I think often people use that sci-fi kind of uh uh get out of jail free card to to absolve themselves of maybe some of the more difficult political uh realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. That's why I'm- that's why I was really happy when we read the book back in our first semester, like the Degrowth Solutions book. We interviewed two of the editors, so that episode is existing somewhere. But it was like the first time that I've seen us like take our political imagination from just diagnosing problems to actually creating solutions. Because often right now, I feel like probably most political organizations spend their time saying, well, what is our priority? What's the biggest problem? And they don't really have the imagination for solutions and solutions end up being either technological, like, oh, it'll fix itself. Like that's how I used to be with climate change. I didn't care up until a certain point because I was like, oh, we'll just create machines to capture carbon from the atmosphere. But it's like, let's think about like what we have access to, what's within reach, within 3% or whatever, and try and be realistic about it, but also creative. And with solar punk politics, it's radical and almost impossible to our imaginations to have a government that is actually working for the well-being of the community who aren't just trying to amass power mass money and make these moves like international moves and stuff because i feel like most governments at least i'll say canada and the united states because they're such huge countries their mindset is very international in a way because they can't think about all the individuals within the the country because there's so many and they're so dispersed and all have such a different experience but with localized governments like i used to know the mayor of my town and she taught at my elementary school taught my sister so she knew everyone and she was involved and she was getting paid a nice wage the wage of a probably what a mayor should be but it's just like but in montreal you don't mm -hmm. so within montreal perhaps like montreal is divided into quarters i suppose but it's not actually four it's just like into little communities so maybe the centerville 
mayor and the I think it's kind of like this in New York a bit, like there's Manhattan, there's Brooklyn. Yeah, I'm, I I know that big cities have boroughs, but I'm mm-hmm. talking about even within those boroughs, you're not going to know the mayor. That's true. Because of how things are. But in maybe Sogopunk, it's a little bit more different because it's mm-hmm. less hierarchical yeah. anyway. To wrap us up, I wanted to talk about examples. I'm not going to get too into it because you can just Google a list of examples. Yeah. But I did want to try and clarify because a lot of these lists include a lot of more cyberpunk futuristic like Blade Runner-y things mm-hmm. and I really don't think that is the solar punk vision at its essence. Well no I think it's that would be technological pessimism. Yeah. Also I had a quote that I thought I could kind of uh, mention we could discuss a little bit which is pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will and it was a quote by uh, from a letter by Antonio Gramsci who was a, a, a Marxist Italian politician from the, from the early 1900s and I saw it referenced in regards solar punk, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And I was kind of like, is that actually accurate or would it be more like the opposite? I think it's more of the opposite. Yeah, I think so too. Because I mean, our whole project with our podcast and our brand is to create a positive vision, but it comes out of a pessimistic soul of like, Things, not necessarily pessimistic soul, but it comes out of like seeing the bad, like seeing what is bad with the world and bad yeah. with the response. But I think that would be pessimism of the intellect. Because y- yeah. I just I just assume the worst of everything current environmental. Mm-hmm. Like there, there is no statistic that could surprise me mm. regarding biodiversity or emissions or waste or anything like that. I just always mm. assume... It's as bad as it could be. Yeah. And yet. And yet you're positive. Very optimistic. Yeah. So yeah, I guess Solopunk is that. Cool. I agree. So in terms of like optimistic examples, all of Studio Ghibli, I was thinking of just like shouting out a few specific ones, but all of them have that kind of DIY textured blend between the past and the future. So all of those films are very Solarpunk. Wally, to an extent, like the message is solar punk. Yeah. But the actual visuals and experience of watching the movie is not. I think the Wally end credits. Yeah. Uh, those will be a, a foundational text. Mm-hmm. And also, specifically on the Studio Ghibli Nausicaa of the Valley mm-hmm. of the Wind. I feel like that's the, maybe the best example because there's that one scene where she's in her underground uh, botanical little experiment laboratory room, mm-hmm. which I really think is the essence of it because she's rebelling against the norm. And mm. she's using technology to do so, but also to aid nature. Yeah. Another one that I saw repeatedly mentioned was Treasure Treasure Planet, which no. we recently watched and did not enjoy. So I wanted to discuss it because I don't think it's solar punk, but it, it just goes to show it's very lacking in terms of yeah. existing media. I hesitate to call something solar punk if it's off earth or set in the future because Mm -hmm. or the the distant future because it's about having resolved today's ecological and infrastructural issues Mm -hmm. so yeah but then that made me think about the aesthetics of journey to the center of the earth because okay in the brendan fraser one when they get to the center of the earth it's very like wow there's this whole ecological phenomena happening despite the the human 
destruction. Yeah. And I feel like to an extent that sort of theme is very solar punk in that nature persists. And in this one, it's not with any help to technology or people, but it's an inspiring kind of the nature still existing in a very pure state within a broken world. Yeah, I think there's a conversation to be had about Jules Verne at large, mm-hmm. whether I think most people would say it was steampunk, but there's definitely so many of the ecological themes in there that, mm-hmm. yeah, there's uh, some overlap for sure. Yeah, for sure. So. My next example is what I mentioned earlier, which is the city of Curitiba, Brazil. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but it's my favorite example in the world because it was a soul man's mission. He was an architect and then he had this vision for the city and then he was elected mayor. And as mayor, he reworked the whole city to be socially and environmentally sustainable in so many ways, put in this wonderful transit system where you don't even have to pay for it, that you can just like exchange your respondables and bring in your composting and then get tickets. And it's like it's just so outside of the box and also so comprehensive. And the biggest reason that this design came to be was because the area is very susceptible to flooding, which is to me, like in the solar punk future, it is, it's not going to like, we're not going to go back. There's still going to be effects of climate change. Yeah. The ecology is going to have changed. So you have to adapt and mitigate. And so within the city, they tried to centralize people a bit more. There used to be favelas along the outside of the city, but they gave people housing basically and found ways to create this green belt around the city so that if it floods, the green belt can absorb the water and not flood the city. And I mean, that's a, a perfect example of the grow out of the site, be unique mm-hmm. and also flexibility and adaptability that I talked about with the organic architecture. Right. Because like in where we live, we're not going to need to worry about flooding mitigation, but we do have to worry about snow. snow. Yeah. yeah. My final example is the book that I've been talking about all throughout, but I'd like to give a designated section to it because I went in pretty pessimistic about it. I find when things are kind of post, like applied a term to it, maybe it doesn't exactly fit. But I'm thinking that this book was very foundational to this movement, Ecotopia by Ernest Kalabach. And he wrote this book in 1975. It's a sort of, it's fictional and it is written from the perspective of a New York reporter slash government informant. So he goes to Ecotopia, which has been separated from the United States for 20 years. And it was funny because they were giving examples of in this future world, because it is said in the future. It's like it, they took their model after Quebec's separating Ooh. from Canada and Shut took their model from apparently in this future that he's describing all of the northern like Nordic countries have combined. They're like, well, they were always kind of one anyway. And it was just like <laughs> super funny. I don't know. The book was like it made me laugh a lot a couple of times. Which I don't know if a book has ever done because it was just these funny I guess because it was written in the 70s mm-hmm. that there were still a few things that like today we don't find that crazy. Like it was talking about how the country, like a lot of the people in power are women. And like even in the 70s, that was still a bit like just coming into vogue. Yes. So it was just talking about that as if it was like the craziest thing in the world to have like women in power. But anyway, he's allowed to go to the city. And so the book is written through a series of his articles that he's writing to like send back to the United States to be published. 
to inform the general population about how this new country is working and also through his journal entries. In those types of books, usually I have a bad... I just like go in kind of expecting the worst. Mm -hmm. But generally it has been... It sounds like you're listening to a podcast, like a news podcast. It's like the way he's writing. But it is interesting and every new chapter is just a new vision of how we could make things work. Is it outdated? Like, is it kind of a retro-futurist thing where... The thing is, it's not. Okay. It's quite impressive in that it's like, this could work. And I really like... I think it benefits my bias of it being written in the 70s so they weren't dealing with, like, the iPhone problem. But they were, like... They grapple with how people are socially isolated and how in this world... There's a few things that I haven't... Because I haven't got to the end of the book yet. I haven't fully worked out, but he keeps describing people like screaming at each other in the streets. I'm like, that doesn't seem very utopian, but it must be some kind of thing about how we don't express ourselves and how in this utopia people express themselves and can get angry. But I guess in kind of like the way that in the Bible, it's like, like a God fearing, like anger, like wrath in a way that's just like a sacred anger. Like you're expressing your anger to another person in public, but no one's like intervening because like they're just like angry at each other. Yeah, they're not I mean, going to be physical. I haven't read it either, but in general, it could be an illustration of you're either resigned to the way the city is or you, you have such an emotional investment and also an optimism of the will that, you you know, it provokes. Mm-hmm actual anger like if someone let's say there was like a bunch of garbage on the street that someone just left out Mm -hmm. you know these days you kind of walk by and you just like shake your head Mm -hmm. but maybe you actually it's standards i suppose exactly and it's one it was just like a really cool book so far i highly recommend it and i will talk more about it on our next episode probably because we're going to do a part two solar punk episode for next week so If you want to hear us talk about some tableaus from the solar punk future, tune in then. Merry Christmas.